True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm your host, Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 25, The Scissors Murder. I do hope that you're all staying safe and healthy and sane during lockdown. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. So, a huge thank you to Jean-André Hubert, Gwen Crick, and Presh from the true crime podcast, Presh's Murder Map, which is a relatively new true crime podcast that covers true crime cases from all over the globe. I'll leave a link to Presh's murder map in the show notes, and I definitely think you should check it out. Thank you so much to those who are able to support the show on Patreon and PayPal. It really makes a huge difference. As always, I appreciate any of the support that our listeners give to the show, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing episodes, commenting, and inviting your friends and family members to listen is just as necessary and helpful. On the 1st of April, one of True Crime South Africa's listeners launched his very own podcast and the latest true crime offering in South Africa. NJ Hawkeby is the host of A Crime Most Queer, which focuses on crimes committed within and by members of South Africa's LGBTQ community. I personally think that this is not only an interesting segment of true crime with different dynamics at play, But there's also a huge number of LGBTQ victims who don't have a voice. And I have no doubt that NJ is going to do a phenomenal job of being that voice. I highly recommend listening to his first episode, which is out now on all major platforms and following him on social media. I chose today's case to cover because it's a solved case, and last week we had a pretty heart-rending unsolved story around the murder of Connor Isaacs. So I thought for this episode I'd do something a little less raw. The case is quite old, it happened in 1974, but the themes behind it are always relevant. The perpetrator in this case is a woman, and I do love to break down those societal myths around women and crime. My predominant resource for this episode was the phenomenal book Blood on Her Hands by Tanya Faber. And now, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Marlene Lenberg grew up in an extremely conservative household. Her mother Mavis and father Arthur met and married into extreme financial difficulties. And for the first part of their marriage, they couldn't afford to live in their own home. Arthur's father offered up his empty garage as a place for the young couple to start their life in. They'd also start their family in that garage, 
which eventually grew to five children, including their daughter Marlene, who was born on the 15th of October, 1955. Eventually, Arthur managed to secure gainful employment, and the Lindbergh family moved to their own home. It is alleged that the Lindbergh siblings did not receive equal affection from their parents, and Marlene seemed to have the weakest bond with her parents of all the children. Although she did extremely well academically, Marlene had no friends, in no small part due to her parents' own social isolation of the family. The Lindberghs, despite being extremely conservative, were not church-going people. But as Marlene became a teenager, she pushed outside of these boundaries slightly and joined the local church group, just to be able to have some form of social interaction. The 70s was still a time when, although some women were starting to stretch their wings and do jobs outside of teaching and nursing and secretarial work, the majority of the female population were not focused on tertiary education, nor were they expected to have great ambitions outside of being a wife and mother. Pauline therefore left school after having passed Standard 8, now Grade 10. Marlene was lucky enough to find a rather good job soon after leaving school at the Red Cross War Memorial Children's Hospital in Rondebosch, Western Cape, where she worked as a receptionist in the orthopaedic workshop. It was here that she met the senior orthopaedic technician, 46-year-old Christiane van der Linde. Marlene, at this point, was still, for all intents and purposes, a child. Although obviously physically developed, she was emotionally rather immature, as she'd been exposed to very little of what the world had to offer. Van der Linde was chief technician in the unit, not a doctor, but well-respected and an authoritarian. He was married with three children. Although Marlene would later say that her attraction to Christiane had been instantaneous, the relationship between the two seems to have remained platonic for at least the first year of Marlene's employment there. The friendship between them was described as almost a father-daughter relationship, but a work function with other co-workers showed a dynamic between the two that was far from parental. Neither party has ever taken responsibility for having crossed the line first, but both knew better than to enter into a sexual relationship together. Morals and the sanctity of marriage, although from a skewed perspective perhaps, had been drummed into Marlene's head her entire life, and despite her immaturity, she was a smart girl. Christian was the adult in the situation, though, and not only was he 30 years her senior, but he was married and her boss. So really, he was committing a triad of offences. Regardless, the pair did cross the line and started having an affair when Marlene was 17. The pair would have liaisons both during the workday and after hours, 
and it's alleged that their two favourite locations were Pardon Aland's Industrial Area and Rondebosch Commons, which is little more than an open piece of land with views of Table Mountain. The spots are quite odd, and I'm pretty sure that Christian could have splashed out for a seedy hotel room somewhere, but perhaps the public nature of the area was the attraction. Christian would later claim that his willpower was all but demolished by the young, attractive, intelligent girl. And although it's unknown whether he led Marlene to believe that there was anything more to their affair than just physical interaction, the young girl did seem to think that this was the start of a long-term relationship and that Christian was going to leave his wife for her. Christian would later claim that he'd always told Marlene that the relationship between them was never going to be more than an affair, as the age gap was far too big for them to be life partners together. He also allegedly told her that his children would always be his priority, and he would not break up his family for her. Despite this, Marlene was obsessed with him. Christian, it seemed, had started to become concerned. Someone had been making anonymous calls to his house, telling his wife that he was having an affair. It was quite likely that someone at the hospital had seen them together. But I wonder now if that anonymous caller wasn't actually Marlene herself trying to get Christian's wife to leave him. If it was her... That backfired on her terribly, as Christian told her that he wanted to break off their relationship. In July of 1974, Marlene made another attempt to force Christian's hand. She told him that she was going to be leaving Cape Town. That attempt didn't work either, as Christian simply shrugged his shoulders and didn't leave his wife. Despite this back and forth between the two, they continued with their affair. In September 1974, Marlene made contact with Christian's wife, Susanna. She phoned her at the house and told the woman that she and Christian were very much in love and that they were seeing each other every night. Susanna didn't reply. She put the phone down in Marlene's ear. Next up on Marlene's plan of action was a face-to-face meeting with Susanna. She agreed to meet the girl in Belleville in October that year, close to the Funderlinda home. Marlene would later allege that Susanna had refused to divorce Christian, but said that she would allow the affair to continue. This was not to Marlene's liking, though. She wanted to be Christian's wife not his permanent mistress. After all, what future could she have with a married man? It is at this time that murder crept into the picture. If she couldn't get rid of Susanna by divorce, then she would have to permanently remove her. 33-year-old Martina Shuhu was a patient of Christian's. Marlene had met the man when he had come to the hospital to have his prosthetic leg fitted after having lost his leg in a car accident. 
Martinez was clearly downtrodden. His clothes were threadbare, and the man could barely write his name on the form that Marlene thrust into his hands when he arrived for the appointment. She'd seen in Martinez, though, exactly what she needed. Someone who just might be desperate enough to do her dirty work for her. Marlene seemed to revel in the sneaky planning she came up with next, and did some digging into Martinez's activities. She found out that he lived in retreat, and spent a lot of time at a pawn shop there. She left a note for him with one of the employees of the shop. The note indicated that he should contact her if he wanted to earn some, quote, good money, end quote. The note did the trick, and very soon Martinez appeared at Marlene's place of work. She slipped a bit of money into his hand and told him to meet her at Rondebosch Town Hall that evening. The meeting took place and Marlene gave Martinez a bottle of gin and a radio before telling him that she wanted him to kill someone. Martinez was allegedly shocked and told Marlene that he would be hung if he were caught. Keep in mind that the death sentence was still in place in South Africa at this time. Marlene had chosen Martinez for his desperation but she should have perhaps also considered that this rather meek-mannered man was not really cut out to be a hitman. He had once been caught with a dangerous weapon in his possession, but other than that, he had no record to speak of. Unfortunately for Marlene, Martinez did seem to have a conscience, because the day after this, he arrived at the Funderlinder home, fully intending to warn Susanna that she was in danger. She'd opened the door when he knocked, but as this well-to-do woman stood before him, he lost his nerve and instead pretended to be begging for money. Susanna declined and closed the door on him. A week later, Marlene again tried to convince Martinez to kill Susanna, but unbeknownst to her, He'd already looked the intended victim in the eyes, which made it even more difficult to contemplate killing her. Marlene tried to entice her would-be hitman with the promise that she would push the manufacture of his prosthetic leg to the front of the queue. Martinez was hobbling around on crutches and having his prosthetic leg would make his life much easier. Of course, Marlene knew this and as if plotting to kill her lover's wife wasn't bad enough, she seemed to have no problem bargaining with the disabled person around the key to their freedom. It seemed that this promise held more sway than money, because Martinez actually did head down to the Funderlander house that day. He still didn't have it in him, though, and he walked straight past. Now, after so many failed attempts, One would think that Marlene would have accepted her murderous plan was not to be, but she was more stubborn than that. She wrote another note to Martinez, which she left at the pawn shop. In it, she indicated that Martinez should use a bread knife if he had to, 
but he had to get the job done. She left a message for Martinez to call her, which he did. Now Marlene upped the stakes and offered Martinez a brand new car if he killed Susana. Still, he refused. Marlene would have never been able to get her hands on a brand new car, but that didn't seem to matter to her. This petulant teenager wanted what she wanted. So she offered Martinez the last thing she could think of. Herself. She promised that she would have sex with him after he had killed Susanna. She likely had absolutely no intention of keeping this promise, but Martinez would have no form of recourse if she refused, and she would already have what she wanted. This offer, strangely, this offer, strangely, seemed to do the trick, as a few days later, likely thinking that she would soon be the new Mrs. Funderlinda, Marlene handed in her resignation. She then collected Martinez, who was armed with a hammer, from his home and drove to the Funderlinda house. Martinez got out of the car and headed towards the door. Susanna Funderlinda, however, spotted him through the window before he made it to the door and recognised him as the man who'd been hanging around the street. She called the police. This, of course, was apartheid South Africa, and all it took was for a coloured man to be in a white neighbourhood to create suspicion. The police arrived promptly and picked Martinez up. He was beaten mercilessly by the police that day and dumped back in retreat. Marlene decided that he was clearly not the right man for the job. She'd moved out of her parents' home by this time and into a boarding house, and she became aware that one of her fellow boarders owned a gun. She asked the young engineering student, Robert Newman, if she could borrow his gun. He said no. She then quite openly asked him if he would consider killing someone for her. He declined that request too. A few days later, his gun went missing. Despite Marlene's alleged intelligence, she seemed to be getting a little bit sloppy. On the 4th of November, Marlene pulled up to Martinez's house. She told him that she was leaving Cape Town for Johannesburg and wanted to say goodbye to Christian. She asked him to accompany her. Martinez agreed, and as they drove, he soon figured out that this was no tame trip for farewells. Marlene pulled the stolen gun out of its hiding place and told Martinez that she expected him to kill Susanna with it. They pulled up outside the Funderlinda residence at about 9am. It was a weekday, and only Susanna was in the house. She was clearing away the breakfast dishes. The account of the events that followed differ, depending on who was telling the story. Marlene would claim that she had rung the doorbell and then left Martinez standing on the doorstep with the gun in hand. She jumped back into her car and sped away. 
She knew nothing of what happened after that, she claimed. Martinez, however, would tell a different story. He says that Marlene did ring the doorbell, but she didn't run away. She stood on the doorstep as the door opened, and almost instantly, Susanna recognised that she was in trouble. He said that the woman tried to get away, but Marlene tripped her and then pistol-whipped her while she lay on the floor until she was almost unconscious. She demanded that Martina strangle Susanna, but then she'd spotted a pair of scissors on a nearby table and gave them to him. Martina admitted to plunging the scissors into Susanna's chest three times. The autopsy, however, showed six stab wounds. A neighbour would confirm that Marlene's car had been standing empty for several minutes outside of the Funderlinda home that morning. This possibly confirms Martinez's version that Marlene had indeed been present inside the house when the murder took place. Martinez was certainly no cold-blooded career criminal and I can only assume that he must have been in a rather altered state while this sudden violence was going on. Did he forget that he stabbed her six times? Or did he try and minimise what he'd done, not realising that the pathologist would be able to tell how many times she'd been stabbed? Or did Marlene stab Susanna the other three times? Marlene did something very strange after the murder, and while they were still in the house. Martinez claims that she grabbed a gas gun, which held a pellet filled with green dye, and she shot him with it. Ironically, it would emerge that Susanna had asked her husband to buy the gun so that she had some form of protection after Martinez kept turning up at her door and standing outside their house. Marlena then loaded him into her car, and driven him home. This certainly is a strange thing to have done, and in the book Blood on Her Hands, the author considers that perhaps this was her way of making him a marked man, so that he stayed inside and kept his mouth shut. I think Marlene may have had dark intentions. I don't know what her knowledge of weapons was, but perhaps she thought that the gun was real and had intended to kill Martinez. Dead men can't tell tales, after all. Sure, she could have used the pistol that she'd stolen from Newman, but perhaps she thought that it could be easily traced back to her through ballistics. I know I'm really reaching here, but maybe Marlene had hoped that by using the gun from inside the house, she could paint a picture of Martinez attacking Susanna, and Susanna fighting back by shooting him, but dying before she could get help. Could Marlene have thought that far? It certainly would have tied things up in a neat little bow for her, although any investigation into Martinez's background would very possibly bring them back to her anyway. Regardless of her motivation, she dropped Martinez off covered in blood and green dye at his home, and then she really did leave Cape Town. Marlene was caught by two speed cameras heading through Beaufort West. 
I assume that she hoped to create an alibi of some sort by not being in Cape Town when 46-year-old Susanna's body was found. Or perhaps this was her way of making sure that, after everything died down, she could ride back into Cape Town and comfort Christian. Christian had been unable to get hold of Susanna that morning, and he was becoming concerned, so he called his daughter and asked her to check on her mother during her lunch break. When the girl's knocks on the door of her home raised no response, she looked through the window and spotted the grisly sight of her murdered mother on the floor. Not surprisingly, the disabled man who'd been seen in the area so many times was the prime suspect. But for at least a week after the murder, Martinez was nowhere to be found. In the meantime, the police became aware that the victim's husband was having an affair, and they located Marlene at her uncle's house in Bryanston, where she was visiting, also known as hiding out. She was picked up by Lieutenant Roland Ferry from the Brixton Murder and Robbery Squad and taken into the police station for questioning. While being driven to the police station, she admitted that she was in a relationship with Christiane but denied knowing anything about the disabled man who'd been seen around the house. Lieutenant Ferry questioned her about her requests to Robert Newman to shoot Susanna, but Marlene initially claimed that she'd been joking. After several hours of questioning, Ferry eventually wore Marlene down, and she admitted to having hired Martinez to kill Susanna but continued to deny having been at the house when he committed the deed. She was arrested and charged with murder, and Martinez was also brought into custody not long after. When he was arrested, he was found in the possession of both Newman's stolen pistol and the gas pistol from the Funderlinders' home. When he was asked why he hadn't just gotten rid of the guns, he stated that it was a very dangerous thing to just throw guns away. The murder trial for the pair began in March 1975, and the state presented over 30 witnesses that testified to evidence of Marlene's involvement. The judge would say that it was one of the most bizarre cases he had ever presided over in his career. Bizarre or not... 34-year-old Martinez and 19-year-old Marlene were both found guilty of murder and sentenced to death by hanging. An appeal a few months later would see the death sentence thrown out and Martinez was sentenced to 15 years and Marlene to 20. Marlene was the youngest woman at that time to have been convicted of murder in South Africa. After the trial, a law was passed in South Africa called the Marlene Lenberg Clause, which prevents convicted criminals from profiting from their crimes in any way. This clause was brought into being because Marlene had allegedly planned to sell her story from jail in order to produce a nest egg for her release. Martina served 11 years before being paroled he went on to become an evangelical preacher, and in 1992, 
He was driving down the N7 just outside of Cape Town when he was involved in a fatal car accident. Marlene used her time behind bars in Polesmore Prison to study music, computer programming and attain a degree in psychology. She was also paroled after serving 11 years. Christian gave several interviews to the media and he seemed to have a strange view of his relationship with Marlene. According to Blood on Her Hands, he told one journalist, quote, Men have had mistresses since time immemorial and will continue to have them. Many of these relationships flower into something really beautiful, as happened to me and Marlene, whom I called Sweetie. Her love for me drove her to kill my wife. But how does that make me evil? End quote. This statement was made quite soon after Marlene's conviction, and he had, at the time, publicly committed to visiting Marlene in prison every month. He did so for a little while, but then he stopped and claimed that he never wanted to see her again. I think that at this time, Christian suddenly realised what he'd gotten himself into. I have no doubt that his children would have been completely enraged at his continuing support for their mother's murderer. He now had nothing. No wife, no family, and no Marlene. He died alone in 1983. When Marlene was released from prison in 1986, she started a long-term relationship with a former fellow prisoner. She was given the option to legally change her name, but declined. She would go on to open a beauty salon and a modelling school, and lived a seemingly normal, albeit apparently lonely, life of glamour. As she aged, however, she developed osteoporosis, and at the age of 59, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. In 2015, just eight days before her 60th birthday, Marlene Lenberg committed suicide. When I was researching this case, I came across a review of the book Blood on Her Hands, written by a woman who had met Marlene Landberg shortly before her arrest. She was dating Rob Newman's brother at the time. Rob Newman, of course, was the young boarder that Marlene had approached to kill Susanna. I'm going to read this word for word as she wrote it. Quote, one late afternoon in 1974, when I was 22, I went with my boyfriend to visit his brother Rob in the boarding house where he lived, behind St. Paul's Church in Rondebosch. Rob hadn't been boarding in the house long, and his initial relationship with his co-residents was bedeviled by the fact that soon after he moved in, someone's portable radio had been stolen. As he was the newest resident, suspicion fell on him. Rob, an engineering student, had also been a victim of crime in the boarding house. He had a pistol, which he kept locked in his wardrobe. One day, it disappeared. We hadn't been in Rob's room long, 
when a slim young fellow resident called Marlene strolled in. She had shoulder-length hair, lots of eye makeup, and was wearing a True Worths mini-dress. My boyfriend and I didn't know her from a bar of soap, but this didn't stop her from perching on Rob's desk, hauling out a nail file to do her nails, and telling us about her unsatisfactory relationship with her older married boss. She was sick and tired of the situation, because he wouldn't leave his wife for her. I told him straight, I wished his wife would just drop dead, and I meant it. Now she was thinking of leaving Cape Town and driving to Joburg to start a new life. I got an Anglia, and it goes, she told us. My eyes were out on stalks. I'd not met anyone like her before. Two weeks or so later, a murder made headlines in the local newspapers. One Susanna van der Linde of Belleville had been murdered, pistol-whipped and stabbed to death with a pair of scissors. Within hours, Rob told us that the woman was Marlene's lover's wife. It all came out at the trial. Marlene had stolen the radio as a bribe for her co-accused, Martina Schuchu, who was supposed to kill van der Linde. Marlene had also stolen Rob's pistol. Rob had suspected Marlene was a thief, because, as we heard later, he'd declined her request to shoot van der Linde. When he reported the theft to the police, he told police that he believed it was her. A detective went to interview Marlene in her room, and then went back empty-handed to Rob's room, and said with a big smile on his face, She's pretty, eh? It turned out, Rob knew Marlene much better than he'd let on at the time. He had taken a number of topless pictures of her, which he sold to the Sunday Times when her murder trial began. End quote. I found this memory fascinating because it gives us a totally different image of Marlene. She was anything but the young girl driven mad by her love for an older man because of her daddy issues. Marlene Lenberg had no problem using her sexuality to get what she wanted. I have no doubt that she was attempting to use flirtation and possibly even sex to get Rob to kill Susanna. Thankfully, he was not swept up by her. She was so good that she even had policemen drooling over her. Much was made of the fact that Marlene's childhood was devoid of affection or a bond with her parents, and I'm sure that did play a role in her initial attraction to Christiane. But you don't go from being socially isolated and desperate for affection to suddenly knowing how to use your sexuality to persuade several men to commit murder for you. Christian may have initially felt that he needn't hold any feelings of guilt about his wife's murder, and sure, he's right, people have affairs all the time. But I do think that as the reality started to sink in, he realised that he was responsible for bringing Marlene into his wife's path, and although he couldn't change the fact that his wife had been viciously murdered, he was certainly making things worse by minimising his role. 
Martinez Shuhu plunged those scissors into Susanna van der Linde, and the fact that he committed murder is not negated by the situation he found himself in. But to a certain extent, he was a victim of circumstances too, and of Marlene. We've seen many cases recently where men involved in extramarital affairs have killed their wives. But we rarely see the mistress taking matters into her own hands. Although I guess we never really know what roles these women may play in encouraging their partners to commit murder, albeit unknowingly. This case was bizarre for many reasons. It had all the makings of a silver screen blockbuster. Forbidden love, hitmen, and a murderer who fit none of the moulds we expect. She was young, and she was female. The sad part of this case is that the many victims of this crime have become almost a backdrop. Susanna van der Linde was 46 years old, and the mother of three children. She had recently found out that her husband was having an affair with a woman the same age as her own children. To spare her children the devastation of a divorce, she put up with the pain of knowing that her husband was conducting a relationship with another woman. And then when even that sacrifice wasn't good enough, her life was taken so that Marlene could get what she wanted. Marlene Lenberg never showed any remorse for the act that took a mother away from three children. While she studied and received degrees in prison on the taxpayer's buck, they had to have graduations, weddings, moments of sadness, and a lifetime of events without their mother, and thanks to his own selfish actions after the fact, without their father too. I don't know where the Funderlinda children are today, but I do hope that they have had full and happy lives. I'm sure that the devastating loss of their mother has tinged everything that has ever happened to them from that day. But I hope that despite this, they may have managed to build strong and fulfilling relationships. Marlene died alone, but she still had a chance at life. What she did with that life, I don't know. She had a Facebook page that was last updated in 2012, three years before her death. She had three Facebook friends. The only photograph of her was one that Gallo Images had claimed rights to and was taken just after her release from prison. And I guess that's where she will always remain in history. Forever an 18-year-old murderous mistress. Thank you for listening to episode 25, The Scissors Murder. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe on the app that you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. During lockdown, I'm not sticking to my normal release schedule and I'll try to get out as much content as possible. I will be back at my earliest possible opportunity. Until then, as always, 
thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.